Hi, our names are Neil and Bea, and welcome to the Succulent Podcast, where we discuss everything and anything with no filter. On this week's episode, we will be looking at a potential link between secularism and atheism and depression. As human civilization has progressed, we have made remarkable strides in prosperity, technology, and decreasing overall human suffering. Living a day without your phone is unthinkable and frankly unfeasible today. Surviving lockdowns in 2020 would be nigh impossible without the comfort and and ease that technology has brought today. Now, with these evolving technologies and sciences, has also come a realization that some of the core tenets and fables of religion ought to be questioned. Was the universe really created as mentioned in the Bible? Could Moses really part the ocean? Does the river Ganges really originate from the dreadlocks of Shiva? Now, silly as it may seem to bring up these questions, it's questions like these which have led to the decreasing religiosity seen in much of the world. For example, in the 2001 British census, 23.2% of respondents either did not state their religion or did not subscribe to any religion. The latter rose to 25.7% in 2011, and in 2016, in a survey conducted by the BSA, which is the British Social Attitudes Organization, 57% stated that they had no religion. Similar trends have been seen in Germany, the USA, and even marginally in India, where religion is really ingrained in the national social fabric. Now, with this rise of atheism, agnosticism, and secularism, however, has also come an apparent rise in depressive symptoms in populaces. In the UK, from 2013 to 2014, a 1.5% rise to a total of 19.7% of respondents noted depressive symptoms. This brings into question... Is the simultaneous rise in secularism and atheism and depression simply a correlation? Or are there underlying mechanisms which haven't been adequately explored yet? Now, this question may not be as simple to answer, regardless of which side um, your answer lies on. Solely because there's a severe lack of good methodology and bias elimination protocol involved in researching this question. For example, just for starters... Clinical depression, or major depressive disorder, was only added to the DSM-3, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, in 1980. And as such, it was only first psychologically realized by Louis de la Sauve in 1856. So really, compared to the history of religion, our knowledge of depression is still in its infancy. So we thought this would be a very interesting and topical subject to mention, simply because we are approaching Christmas, which many people observe and which is inevitably tied to the religion of Christianity. But we are also dealing with a global pandemic and many countries, including the UK, are just about to exit their second lockdown, which was marked, sadly, by a lot of social isolation and loneliness, including exponential increase and daily suicide rates. Now, before I get into some of the inevitable benefits of religion and spirituality and being connected to something that is bigger than the physical and that which is easily seen, I would just like to take a moment to appreciate perhaps one of the biggest 
links that a lot of randomized controlled trials have found to be a consistently relevant cause of depression, and that is the importance of human connection. There are many randomized control trials that are still at odds with each other on whether or not belief in a higher power or a god can truly help alleviate symptoms of depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. Furthermore, there is still not enough clinical evidence that would strongly suggest that being more religious would help in depression. This is not to say that religion cannot in any way alleviate any symptoms of poor mental health, but I think one of the most important things to highlight that constitutes good mental health and which the pandemic has definitely exaggerated is the need for human contact, being social, and connecting with other humans. Connections and togetherness and a sense of community are evolutionary and they are what have shaped us and what have ensured the continuation of the human race. And that is why it's very clear that an absence of these, whilst they no longer lead to death and isolation, definitely lead to some sort of mental decline. Yes, there is definitely research that suggests that having a relationship with God may compensate for some of the purpose that social relationships would otherwise provide. But however, regardless of religiosity, if people, generally speaking, feel socially disconnected, they almost always report much lower levels of purpose in life than people who feel socially connected. And what is a life without individual purpose? For many people, this is what leads to anxiety and an impending sense of doom. What I'm trying to say is, whilst having a relationship with any sort of divinity or monotheistic power or any sort of religion can be a beautiful and empowering thing, it must not be something that we rely upon for purpose over other people. Quality human connections are still a primary and enduring source of purpose in life. And until we can achieve that, a lot of things seem to just be filling an empty void. Of course, I realize I'm entering incredibly personal and subjective territory. For a lot of people, in order to feel connected again to others, they first need to feel a connection to something bigger than them. I can absolutely stand by this. In fact, um, the very essence of religious life means coming out of your own small and selfish ego to go toward an ideal and divine reality. But given the current context that we find ourselves in, a very isolating and awful pandemic, which has left people, amongst other things, feeling incredibly isolated and chipped away from the rest of the world, and also with the dangerous rise of social media and online interactions replacing face-to-face -face ones, it's more important now than ever to rebuild the sense of community and togetherness, which was previously such a healthy and imperative aspect in our lives. A lot of people feel a sense of community and togetherness within their religious congregations, and that is definitely a potentially very powerful and healing thing, and I am not in any way advocating against that. However, there, there are nuances to this, which I will bring up in a further argument, but just given Neil's analysis of the decline of religion and feelings of being religious, we need to rebuild a sense of community, togetherness, and replenish our human connections in ways that don't solely rely on a shared set of metaphysical morals or beliefs. 
Indeed, and as I said before, even though we have the technology today to be connected, even when we don't see people in real life, over a long period of time, it, it will finally become more important to see people in person rather than over Zoom. It's why, since the beginning, we've known that lockdowns are not feasible because all humans have this very basic need to physically be in contact with other people. And so while religion may not be fulfilling that role for a lot of people in 2020, it's not to say that those who are atheist or agnostic have no social bubbles per se. They do, it's just that it's not realized in a manner of divinity. This really brings in the question of correlation versus causation. Are depression and atheism two variables that are indeed correlated through a mechanism somehow, or is it simply that they coincide together? So to answer this, I'd like to begin with a meta-analysis done by Bonelli et al., which was published in 2012. They reviewed 178 methodologically rigorous studies, and out of those 178, 119, which is about 67%, found less depression, faster recovery, or greater responsiveness to religious or spiritual intervention. Also, out of the 178 studies, 13, so about 7%, reported the opposite. Now, factors such as gender, age, ethnicity did not apparently contribute to these results in that even adjusted for variables such as age, sexuality, etc., these results did not largely change. A similar study was conducted by psychiatric epidemiologists at Columbia University, who reported that religious individuals were 73% less likely to be depressed as their non-religious counterparts. Now, why might this be so? Bonelli et al. stated that religious intervention has been associated with positive emotions greater altruism, better school performance, less substance abuse, etc., usually via offering a so-called social bubble for people of faith. Now, social bubbles are known to reduce stress factors and are effective buffers against depression and suicide. We know this. However, it should be noted that variables such as altruism and school performance are quite nebulous terms to use, and as such, we shouldn't be drawing far-reaching conclusions from them, simply because they're not indicators of a better person per se. This meta-analysis also shed light on studies which reported contrasting results, that is, religious intervention led to greater rates of depression. It primarily ascribes this to environmental factors, such as a poor home environment or financial struggles. Several other studies have also noted this. For example, in Europe, a study found a positive link between religiosity and depression in countries which held more orthodox religious beliefs in general. In a study done in Mexico, uh, where they surveyed people who are recovering from substance abuse, the initial recovery rates from uh, using these substances were also shown to be higher for those undergoing behavioral counseling, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, rather than religious interventions. This research that they did also extended to suicides because depression is a known risk factor for suicide. Uh, 
the meta-analysis refers to a study uh, which sort of purviewed this literature, which was presented in the 2001 and 2012 editions of the Handbook of Religion and Health. It identified 141 studies which examined the relationship between religion or spirituality and either completed suicide, attempted suicide, or attitudes towards suicide. Now, out of those 141 studies, 106, so about 75%, found inverse relationships, as in religiosity or spirituality decreased the chances of suicide. Only four of those 141 found more suicide attempts, completed suicides, or positive attitudes towards suicide among people with more religious involvement. Moving on, before I get into my next point, I would just like to clarify that science and its origins was never established as a bitter counterpart to purposely antagonize religion. It really developed naturally as empirical evidence, observation, and experimentation took hold, and people started gaining more concrete, more objective ways of answering questions that relied on facts they could measure quantitatively, rather than explaining it through some kind of greater philosophy of a big unknown. So what does that have to do with my next point? Well, because of the way science has evolved and subsequently religion has declined given how many more answers we get with science, our quality of life has actually improved quite a bit. We have eradicated, well, not eradicated, but significantly reduced the amount of poverty. We can now cure diseases which were previously uncurable years ago. Technology has made our lives so much easier and more accessible. We can stay interconnected to people from every corner of the globe. And we have created a more unified and interconnected global market in which we can interact with each other for our various needs and build upon different knowledge. So in that sense, the rise of science has been incredibly positive, and it's helped us elucidate ways in which we can improve our physical, emotional, and mental health. However, with all of the progress and advancements we have made, we have also created an entire string of problems, which perhaps might be a better indicator of why we are experiencing skyrocketing mental health decline and suicide rates than simply a lack of religion. While it is inevitable and a very big truth, a quite obvious one, that there has been significant economic growth, especially with the rise of capitalism. What we need to understand is that this economic growth hasn't necessarily been equal across generations. Though objectively speaking, we can laugh about millennials being whiny, narcissistic, and entitled, <laughs> forgive my stereotypes, it is actually very true that they are stuck in student debt loans, which are absolutely enormous, and this mostly pertains to the United States. Some people can't even pay them off in a lifetime, and scientists have seen a direct correlation and a causation between declining mental health and an increase in student debt, which is pretty self-explanatory for the most part. And a reason for student debt increasing so much is because education nowadays is absolutely vital to attain a well-paid job. In fact, getting a well-paid job has never been more expensive. The cost of education has more than doubled over the, the century. However, sadly enough, incomes have remained more or less the same, which translates into more spending and less earning. 
I mean, this isn't exactly fiction. Just look at the ratio of the median cost of attending college and the incomes of 24 to 35 year olds. Another reason why it's so expensive to get a job nowadays? Well, the economy now is different than what it was back in the so-called golden ages of America. Nowadays, it's far less based on manufacturing and places a lot more emphasis on a worker's knowledge, intellectual capital, and mental skills. These are all things which take a lot of time, effort, money, and teachers to develop, and that means you will have to get a college education, but not even simply a bachelor's degree. Most jobs, which 15 years ago would be fine with, let's say, a pass in in undergraduate education, now want a master's degree and, dare I say, even graduate school or a PhD. It is not considered fancy or elitist anymore to have all these degrees. It's moving into a requirement more than it is a supplementary bonus. And just to clarify, this isn't because there is a decline in manufacturing jobs. It's because science and technology have made it possible to use robots to achieve the things that humans were once needed for. So there is student debt and financial insecurity, which millennials have reported to be their absolute biggest concerns and the biggest driving factors behind their decision-making or lack thereof. In fact, a lot of millennials have reported something called quote-unquote analysis paralysis where they're presented with so many different choices that they eventually fall into a loophole of not being able to decide which one, given how overwhelmed they are. And of course, with the issue of student debts and financial insecurity and not being able to move out of their parents' houses plaguing them, It becomes a very big emotional toll and burden, and certainly one that is primary and which kind of overshadows any more nuanced or complex issues like, is there a god and what is the purpose of my life? It seems to me as though the majority of millennials, who are self-described as the most angsty and depressed generation of all, have very concrete existential questions which must be addressed first, literal questions of what am I going to do and how am I going to earn this money in a sustainable way? Finally, one last reason that I really wanted to delve into as to why people are increasingly more depressed nowadays that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with religion is that Millennials and Gen Zers, generally speaking, nowadays tend to be the most depressed in their 20s. And that is because of societal expectations. It is because everyone is expected to start a family, a successful company, have a business, and be completely intellectually fulfilled before they hit their 30s. After that, it's game over. With that kind of pressure, unpaid student debt, competition skyrocketing through the roof, And the general pressure of succeeding in what is now a very knowledge-based economy, it's no wonder that millennials and Gen Zers are so depressed. They're holding themselves to an impossible standard and not giving themselves the room for error because they are terribly afraid of how much this could set them back. Once again, with finances being an extra worry at the back of your head, which quite literally threaten your existence, It's a little bit hard to put on a happy face and think about religion and God and how those things are going to bring you satisfaction when you can't even fulfill primary needs. But of course, 
to add on to your personal and family's disappointment of your supposed lack of accomplishments, there is social media. And what is social media if not a fake and exaggerated tool where people can artificially inflate the highlights of their life as a means of comparing themselves to each other? I don't mean to sound like anyone's mother or grandmother when I say put your damn phone away, but it is true. Social media has never been as popular as it is now, especially during the pandemic. It is replacing almost every form of human contact, and people don't have much to do, so inevitably they start posting things on their Instagrams, Facebooks, Snapchats, you have it. And it is human to compare yourself and to think, well, why is this person having a better time than me? Without actually taking into consideration that Social media is just a platform for people to post all their highlights. Most people, unless they're desperate attention seekers, don't tend to post the worst days of themselves crying and having a mental breakdown on their social media. People have always worried about their social standing and being part of the crowd and being socially accepted. We have covered this extensively in our very first episode, which I think you should definitely listen to if you haven't already. There has always been a desire to keep up with our peers at all age groups, especially when you're when you're when you're young and still figuring out who you are. But social media is just an added flame that exaggerates this process and makes us competitive at unhealthy and unproductive levels. We achieve far less whilst burdening ourselves far more. And that is why before we jump to a lack of religion, we first need to consider all these other factors that I have mentioned. Would religion perhaps help ease the process? Maybe, and I'll get into those arguments later. But it should not be seen, in my opinion, based on this evidence, as a primary source of the rise in depression. We have to look at the more concrete ways in which society, the economy, and the government have failed our youth, and how we need to take back our power. So as we can see, there's a very urgent need to address this rise in depression and anxiety and social anxiety that we see in today's youth. And the stepping stone really for addressing this is the use of interdisciplinary approaches. And that really begins by defining what a discipline is in the first place. It is a field with a well-defined structure and a credible repository of literature producing knowledge by employing reliable methodologies which have the scope of real-life applications and also has a recognizable history with paradigm shifts where there have been major shifts in how we think about a subject because that shows that it's a dynamic uh, discipline. And it is but natural given that a discipline is dynamic that it's going to harbor and nurture contrasting perspectives primarily due to very cognitive processes that may include biases and preconceived notions, and that affects how someone interprets these parameters of that, de- that define a discipline. In the context of religion and depression slash the therapy that one uses for depression, we see that there's either a lack or an unwillingness to combine the elements of religion and therapy and there's good reason why there's an unwillingness to do so religion does not exactly fit well into 
the largest scientific framework in which therapy functions. The interplay between therapy and religion has had quite a troubled history. For example, Sigmund Freud wasn't particularly a fan of religion and therapy, and he called it infantile and humiliating. For him, religion was a stand-in until we discovered the underlying scientifically describable basis of the human psyche. But the thing is, by harboring contrasting perspectives, we're really poking at the learning mechanisms through which we sort of derive knowledge in both religion and science. Knowledge, at the end of the day, is a product of learning, and in epistemology, which analyzes how and the mechanisms by which we derive knowledge, it's categorized into two main processes, which is accommodation, in which existing schemas of knowledge change on the basis of newly learned information, and assimilation, where existing knowledge that we have is influenced by new conflicting information. Currently, what we see is that there's more of a conflict where we're not ready to imbibe sort of the perspectives that religion may provide into science because we regard science as having a very rigid framework. But at the end of the day, the way we understand the scientific method is an interpretation and therefore we can't assure that it has no bias in it. As much as we would love to deny it and as much as we would like that it not be a part of the scientific method, at some point, especially in something like therapy, emotion plays a vital role. And emotion is an important way of knowing because many human behavioral patterns are attributable to it. But at the same time, it leads to a paradox. Because whilst emotion is required to produce knowledge in any field, it also leads to confirmation bias and framing bias, which really bring into the question the reliability of this knowledge that we're producing. Right, confirmation bias leads to pre-existent knowledge having a much larger effect whilst assimilating new information, causing it maybe to be wrongly interpreted, whereas framing bias allows for accommodation of information posed to someone as verisimilitude. Basically, the two lead to a disjoint method of evaluating knowledge as the process of categorizing knowledge is virtually flawed. So this is sort of the counter-argument that people have to imbibing religion into therapy. But whilst we're dealing with the knowledge framework of each of these areas of knowledge, religion, therapy, etc., that we're dealing with, we have to appreciate the nuances that each of them have. Therapy is not the same as chemistry, and so we can't expect it to have the same rigidness that chemistry does pertaining to the scientific method. And so it's necessary to employ evaluation methodologies which touch upon the nitty-gritty of each field. And in the sciences, the existence of contrasting perspectives gives impetus to research, which holds the knowledge framework together, and it allows for a structure, reliable methodologies, developing tradition, and a credible research repository, which currently is lacking in therapy, especially pertaining to religion. And which is why contrasting perspectives are inseparable and can be justified to assure that we have a healthy 
momentum of research going on. So I previously mentioned some of the shortcomings of assuming that a lack of religion and perhaps the rise of atheism are to blame for depression and the lack of purpose in in life, hence leading to the decline in mental health. But I will now go on to some of the more positive aspects of perhaps re-embracing religion in a different context, perhaps, than before. So, for one, having a general awareness of religion, without necessarily practicing any of it, means that we can perhaps rebuild some of the disconnection that we've given ourselves through the pandemic and through over-reliance on social media. By fostering intercultural literacy, we can understand the human connection, the human condition, and understand what gives other people a sense of identity and perhaps even relate this to ourselves. Not to mention that tolerance trumps ignorance and that tolerance is only achieved through knowledge. And of course, on a far more simpler level, even if you do choose to practice religion, this can have a variety of positive aspects, not simply in finding a purpose in life, but because it can be a far healthier coping mechanism than, say, resorting to drugs and alcohol, which unfortunately have been on the rise. There is also the fact that through belief in a divine power, individuals can find a a unique sense of peace and inner harmony and through shared beliefs that religions have fostered, you can have a sort of social cohesion and social solidarity. I mean, even with Christmas, right? A lot of people do very similar things. They have their families over, they put up a Christmas tree, they give each other presents, they have a big delicious dinner. These are all small things which perhaps might seem banal, but they did stem originally from Christian and pagan religions, perhaps pagan first before Christian, but nonetheless they stemmed from a higher form of spirituality and in a sort of innocent and very socially cohesive way they have united people and brought a common sense of joy and it's something that a lot of people can connect with and form stronger relationships over. So these are all smaller sort of more subjective and individual ways in which perhaps reintroducing um, the option and I say option not need the option for religion and spirituality can be extremely beneficial and perhaps help restore the gap between ourselves and a purpose in life. So bringing all of this back into the context of religion and psychotherapy, is it a legitimate tool that we can use? Now, whilst the meta-analysis by Benelli, which I mentioned before, shows some supporting evidence of its validity as a psychotherapeutic tool, there are, however, variables that it does not include, which are important to highlight. Abernethy and Lanchier put it in their 1998 research paper titled Religion and the Psychotherapeutic Relationship. These variables may include, but they're not limited to, the degree of openness, attunement, consultation, and interpretation. Now, religiosity, or the lack thereof, is an extremely private matter on which one should tread rather carefully when questioning a patient, right? There needs to be a certain level of trust when it is discussed, and more importantly, therapists or doctors need to take care not to cloud their 
judgment and the therapy protocol due to biases and mismatch of beliefs or fates. This is perhaps where modern medicine's methodologies have an edge. Whilst they're not completely perfect, they have been ratified and keep being ratified to stick as closely as possible to the scientific method and hence actively engage in reducing their bias towards treatment. This is not to say that all those who are religious are biased in their treatment plans. No, that's absolutely not the case. But it is nonetheless a possible source of error. Secondly, therapists need to be attuned to the meaning of their own religious beliefs when the topic does come up. There should be an appreciation of their own as well as their patient's history with religion and or spiritual beliefs. Therapists should also consult other professionals when dealing with religiosity and spirituality. And this is where organizations such as the APA, which is the American Psychiatric Association, may be helpful, along with clergymen and pastoral counselors, because this really helps clarify religious beliefs and practices, which are very nebulous and are open to a wide variety of uh, interpretation. Lastly, there should be a realization that religious content needs to be interpreted in the context of the patient. It should not be avoided when brought up by the patient themselves, and when addressed, the manner of doing so should be as respectful as any other patient communication. Just because religion does not fit the scientific method does not mean it isn't important when treating a patient who may be religious or spiritual. In a similar manner to how there's been a recent call for doctors and therapists to take note of people's race, gender, ethnicity and class whilst discussing issues and treatment plans with them, the same can be said for religion as well. And so really increased sensitivity to overt as well as covert religious themes in how patients communicate with their doctors and therapists, is quite an important skill and there really should be a greater push for research in this area. I will now move on to my own personal suggestion of how perhaps we can introduce a more global and universal variant of having and fostering purpose through religion. And that is not using religion as an institution, but religion as the spiritual belief in something that is bigger than our mortal selves and bigger than what we can simply see or imagine. And how can we reintroduce this type of religion or spirituality? Well, believe it or not, I do think we can actually interlink it to science and that when used in an appropriate dose, religion can be a wonderful addition to science. Apart from the fact that some of the greatest scientists were highly religious, the Belgian priest, Georges Lemaitre, was actually also an astronomer and a scientist who was one of the founding fathers of the modern Big Bang theory of the creation of the universe, which nowadays is based in a lot of scientific fact and is currently considered the gold standard explanation of how the universe came to be. But notice how I said that this man was a priest. So clearly, his own religious beliefs and values did not interfere with his scientific and empirical reasoning that led him into creating the Big Bang Theory. Basically, what I'm trying to say is the two do not have to be mutually exclusive, assuming your religion isn't dogmatic. 
science and religion both seek to explain and simplify the human experience just through different means. And they evolved in different points of time, and now they seem to be diverging one from the other, but they don't necessarily have to. So as we all know, science is all about obtaining empirical, objective evidence that can be measured somehow through the natural world, and it doesn't deal with the supernatural, the mystical, or the unknown. Religion, on the other hand, is quite the opposite. It does not depend on empirical evidence, it isn't necessarily modified in the face of conflicting evidence, and yes, it typically does involve supernatural forces or entities, and answering life's bigger questions that science simply cannot, such as why are we here, is there a universal purpose, what happens after we die, and what is the point of the universe. So in this sense, because science and religion now, generally speaking, answer different questions, they address primarily different aspects of human understanding in very different ways. That is why it's almost silly to pit them one against the other and creating controversy where it simply isn't needed. I mean, generations of, of thinkers, scientists, and researchers, and some of the greatest people in the world, um, often priests like Georges Lemaitre, wanted to explain how this big metaphysical force, how, how God created all these wonders and things. Um, in fact, some people would even argue that modern physics started as a desire to explain the clockwork of God's creation. What about modern biology? Well, some people would even say that scientists and thinkers wanted to disprove or see whether or not there was a divine providence. And finally, how did modern geology arise if not partly due to the curiosity to see whether or not Noah's flood even was real? What I'm trying to say is the two can be beautifully intertwined, and in a way, science is the daughter of religion. It is the response that grew out of a more ancient and perhaps, in the beginning, primitive form of reasoning that simply didn't have the tools to answer the questions that we now know the answers to. And even now that we know there are such things as evolution, random chance, the Big Bang Theory, and whatnot, there are such questions as, well, did God create chance? Did God create the Big Bang Theory? Where did the laws of physics and mathematics even come from in the first place? And, of course, there, there, there is no need, no, no legal obligation, I suppose, to turn to religion, but it can be a wonderful bridging gap between the objective which we do know and the mystical, which is so complex and so difficult and nearly impossible to answer that only something supernatural and divine beyond the scope of our reasoning can be the force behind such a thing. Science is simply a framework for proving and eventually disproving things until we have a better explanation. Religion, if we wish to implement it, and which I think perhaps could be a good idea, could be the extra filler that gives a more exciting nuance or taste to the more difficult questions that science can't answer, and perhaps to the more difficult concepts that perhaps we never were meant to find out in the first place. Finally, I would just like to end my part of today's episode by saying that secularism really pushes for the freedom of religion and the freedom to embrace whatever religion or lack thereof best suits your needs and your own values.
A democratic society is one in which knowledge, advancement, and freedom of thought, speech, and action are the most valued, and thankfully, freedom of religion falls under this domain, and that's why we can have these types of productive conversations today. And of course, whilst this isn't directly related to any of the points I made, I do think it's important to note that thanks to secularism, we have championed universal human rights above religious demands and anything else, and we have been able to uphold tremendously important things like the rights of LGBT people, women, and minorities, and created a more inclusive and tolerant society. That's all from us for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we will see you in the new year. Bye! Goodbye!